up on today's show, MPs took Facebook to task about a new bill that would force them to pay media outlets for the content they advertise. We'll also find out what's going on with school bus drivers in this part of the world. There is a very drastic shortage right now. And yeah, we're doing this, we're doing that for defense, but really we're so far behind, we haven't even caught up. A couple of Facebook reps were in Ottawa on Friday answering questions from members of Parliament as part of uh, the hearings into Bill C-18. Now, basically what that would do is require Facebook and Google to share some of the revenue that they earn from the news content um, that they post, share some of the revenue with the media outlets that actually created the content, because right now they don't. They take the content, they sell advertising for it, and... Um, the gener- the outlets that generate that content don't see any cash from Facebook for it. Now, Facebook calls the bill misguided. Um, they recently threatened to put a stop to all news that they share in Canada. It was that threat, I think, that got MPs uh, riled up, and they were grilling them pretty good on Friday. It got pretty tense at times. So let's chat with Anthony Housefather, who is a Liberal MP for Mount Royal. Um, Anthony, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure to join you, Jay. You were one of the MPs, of course, uh, trying to hold Facebook's feet to the fire on this issue. Now, the threat or that warning from Facebook, that was the focus of the back and forth on Friday. Um, You pressed them on a couple of issues around that. Outline the concerns you have with what Facebook had to say about what they might do if you do what you might do. Sure. Well, first of all, it's absolutely acceptable for people to say they disagree with the bill and they want to see amendments. What's not acceptable is to threaten the government, to threaten legislators and to threaten 21.5 million Canadians who use Facebook. Um, as you recall, Shay, they did this in Australia last year. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they threatened Australia. And then instead of just taking down the news pages that they said they were going to take down, they blocked pages on kids cancer, on fire and rescue services during the wildfire season, on vaccine notification during a vaccine rollout, uh, information on domestic violence, et cetera, et cetera. And then they claimed, well, this was all a mistake, but it only got rectified seven days later, seven minutes after the Senate in Australia responded to Facebook's threats by amending the bill. And I don't think we want to see Canadians be put in the situation where Facebook takes down all the pages that provide legitimate news and other things. Um, and, and I just think it's completely unacceptable that they came and they couldn't answer questions about what happened in Australia. They, they, they simply said, well, it, it, it was by accident and, and it clearly wasn't. And, and this threat is just not acceptable. Like legislators should not be put in a situation by a company that is bigger than most states, uh, threatening Canadian users. And I found it to be unconscionable. What would this bill require of Facebook? What exactly does this bill lay out in terms of what they have to do in terms of compensation for content? So it's a great question. So Facebook and Google together earn about 80% of all digital advertising revenue in Canada. And this would require presumably those two entities and only those two entities, although it's not, you know, laid down that it can't be anyone else, but it at this point I think would be pretty much them, um, would have to negotiate with newspapers, newspapers that have employed more than two journalists or news outlets that employed more than two journalists. And, and essentially those entities could get together and do collective bargaining with Facebook or they could negotiate with Facebook on their own and they need to reach agreements with, with those entities. And, 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 and if they reach enough agreements with those entities, then, then they'll be okay. If not, you know, then, then the CRTC could require them to do certain things such as, you know, go to arbitration. Uh, which would be a baseball type arbitration where one side's, you know, position would get chosen over the other. 
Now, Facebook says what you're proposing and what you're talking about doing here is completely unheard of. It's never happened anywhere else on Earth. And in fact, it shows a complete lack of understanding of how Facebook works because, you know, the news outlets benefit from all the exposure that they get. You know, I mean, I think there's two things. Number one, obviously, it's not unheard of in the world because Australia just did it and France is doing it and there's other countries doing it. Um, and I think the United States even has a bipartisan bill, um, you know, sponsored by both liberal Democrats and conservative Republicans that would essentially do the same yeah. thing in the United States. Um, with respect to the question of, um, you know, like, uh, so what was your second question? Well, um, they're saying that it, it shows a complete lack of understanding of how Facebook works because they're saying, you know what, all of those clicks and all those ads that we're selling, that benefits the media outlets because that's how people are, are being exposed to their content. They're getting tons of free promotion. You know, it's an interesting thing that, you know, new, news originally drew people to the Facebook platform. People go to Facebook because they get information there. And what they would do if they took off legitimate news content would only to be have disinformation on their platform, right? They would be getting conspiracy theories yeah. and QAnon theories and other stuff and have no legitimate news to counter it. I don't think that would be attractive to Facebook users. And in the, and in the issue of news, I mean, journalists, as, as you know, Jay, we're, we're, we're very hard to, to, to create news stories that provide not only information to the public, but also uncover things. I mean, uh, a lot of the things that people complain about about governments are uncovered by journalists. If we don't have news outlets being able to afford because they don't have any advertising revenue, the ability to hire journalists um, and all of that revenue is going to Facebook and Google who aren't spending money to hire journalists to cover news and, 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 and uncover things, um, I, I think our society would be all the poorer. And I think this is the legitimate way to say to them, look, the government is not telling you what agreement to come up with. We're just saying you have to go negotiate. And the two of you as private enterprises come to an agreement. And it empowers the news outlets there who would otherwise be, you know, facing an adversary that is a million times bigger than them, mm -hmm. the right to get together and negotiate collectively with Facebook. And, and by the way, if Facebook claims that there's no value to news, they've already reached agreements with some Canadian have, yeah. Uh, yeah, outlets. So, so why did they do that? I, I, yeah, I agree with what you're saying. It, 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 there's no question that, that you know they're being paid for the content makes perfect sense. Uh, the the other issue that Facebook was raising, and I, I want to get some clarity on this because they say they weren't invited to the previous hearings. Google was. Google was there. Facebook wasn't. They're coming in after the fact and weren't invited, and they would like to have been at the table. W what happened there? Were they not invited? So the way it works is witnesses come to the committee clerk that informs members of the committee from all parties who was asked to appear. Google asked to appear. So the committee invited Google. Facebook never came to the clerk of the committee to ask to appear. Facebook has my information as a member of parliament, as a member of the committee. They've emailed me many, many, many times about things. They never approached me asking to appear, even as an individual member of the committee. So Facebook never asked to appear. Google did, which is why Google was invited and Facebook wasn't. Okay. And, and, and beyond the fact that, you know, all four parties on the committee, the Liberals, the Conservatives, the NDP and the Bloc, also have the right to create witness lists. And we could also include people who didn't ask to appear. Nobody included Facebook uh, high enough on their list for Facebook to have appeared. But then when Facebook said we want to appear, we immediately invited them. You know, and, and it's also interesting. I, I'm, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, Shay. Facebook was called before our committee last year to answer questions about what happened in Australia. 
The same person from Facebook, Mr. Chen, came to the committee and said he had zero information about Australia and spent an hour telling us how he knew nothing about what happened in Australia. So I asked him, what well, would Mark Zuckerberg know the answers to these questions? Because they all happen. Right, yeah. It, yeah. And so he said, well, yeah, I guess he would. So we summoned, which is like issuing a subpoena to Mark Zuckerberg. He never showed up. He ignored our summons. So, so this is the way Facebook basically treats the Canadian Parliament. They ignore our summonses and then throw a temper tantrum when they're not invited, when they never asked to appear. Where do we go from here? What's next? Well, so we have one more day of witnesses on Friday. And then we're supposed to put, by a unanimous agreement of the members of the committee, um, we were supposed to put in our amendments. We have another Hockey Canada meeting next Tuesday, which I'm sure will be interesting for many of your listeners. Um, and then on Friday of next week, uh, we're uh, Friday of the week after, sorry, because next week is a district week, uh, we're supposed to start clause by clause, which is where every member of the committee and other members of parliament can bring whatever amendments they want. And then the committee considers the amendments one by one. So all of the things that Facebook and Google, particularly Google, who acted reasonably here, you know, asked will be considered and people will draft amendments and they'll all be debated, negotiated. um, And then the bill will change from what it is today. Okay. Uh, Anthony, thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate being here. Imagine being bus driver on a day like today uh think about that oof uh wouldn't be fun added pressure and you know what it, there's a lot of pressure in uh, our school bus system right now too um and with school back full blast the kids co- coming and going as always how is it going for you are your kids having trouble with with busing i know a lot are in the province of alberta things always come up right um, one of the issues that's plaguing, plaguing a lot of Albertans right now, though, is uh, just not having enough buses. It's really, really tough. Um, we're terribly short drivers in Alberta right now, apparently, like, like worse than we've ever been before. We're going to chat with Mark Critch, who is the president of the Alberta School Bus Contractors Association, to find out what's going on. Mark, uh, thank you for your time. I appreciate you being here. Thanks. Uh, happy to be on. Uh, first of all, did you drive bus? Did you, were you a school bus driver before you got into this position? Not, not for many, many years. I'm just wondering, what's it like on a day like today? That first snowfall. It's got to be absolutely nerve wracking, right? It's a tough, tough day uh, in the north for sure, and uh, it, it is. Uh, it just makes the job that much tougher for sure. It's, yeah. uh, it's stressful, and, and a lot of our drivers are fairly new uh, at the job. So for for many of them, this will be their first taste of winter driving a school bus. Yikes! Yeah. So uh, good luck to them. Uh, stay safe. So give us the state of play in Alberta right now. I, I, I saw some media reports where you were saying you've never seen um, the, I guess the, the the pool of bus drivers as low as it is right now, right? Absolutely. This is this is the uh, the toughest year we've had, and and you know we've struggled with it off and on throughout the years, of course. But uh, this is by far, and it's it's been getting progressively worse since 2019, and this is this is the worst year for sure. So when you say it's the worst year, give us uh, break that down. What does that mean? Like how short are you? Uh, you know the numbers fluid, of course, because people come and people go, but hundreds, uh, you know, two three hundred a day, given. Uh, the day of the week and, and how it goes. I'm hearing as high as 28% short in some regions wow. of the province. You know, we try to stay on top of the numbers with our membership, but, um, you know, as I said, it's pretty fluid. So definitely hundreds. Um, and, and as I said, 28% is the, the, the number, the worst that I've seen in, in 
some areas of the province. Okay, if you're talking about a 28% shortage, that means I mean you don't you can't operate all the buses you want. To, what happens? What 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 ha- when you've got a 28% shortage in drivers, what does that mean for the kids that rely on school buses? Well, it depends on the area. If you're in the city, typically we can double up, sometimes triple up. Another driver comes back, grabs another route and uh, and starts again type thing or we split and, you know, some drivers pick up kids in areas that they usually don't pick them up in. So, you know, in the cities, in, in the urban areas, we could typically, hopefully make do. Um, in the rural areas, that becomes a situation where the kids just aren't getting a bus to go uh, to go to school. Really? Hey, has that been happening? Do you, that's been going on in our province so far this school year. I mean, we're two months in now. Absolutely, absolutely. It happens. It happens regularly. Boy, um, and you say this is right across the province. This is happening in all areas. Yep, yep. right from south uh, south of Alberta, right to the north. This is happening all over. The cities aren't immune. They're seeing it. You know, and we say we still get them to school, which we do in the cities, but. You know, I, I want to put this in terms of lost instructional time. If you've got 50 kids on each bus and you've got 100 late late buses in the city and they're late by a half an hour because we're doubling up runs there, you know, you're, you're losing 1,500 instructional minutes on that bus, every bus. Per day. Per day. Per day. Per day. And that's happening right across the province. But in the cities, it's happening for sure because, as I said, we're doubling up. We're... You know, we're pulling people out of the office and, and missing phone calls and, and radio emergencies because we're putting people in buses to drive that typically don't drive. It's um, it's it's a nightmare right now. Okay, so so what's going on? This is just labor. You just don't have the drivers. Is that what it boils down to? Well, you know, it's all like I said. It's been an ongoing problem. It's a tough job, and it doesn't pay near enough. And uh, it's a split shift: early morning and then late in the afternoon, and you go home midday. So those have always been issues we've had, but. You know, Alberta Transportation in 2019 brought in a program called MELT, Mandatory Entry-Level Training, and that really was uh, what exacerbated the problem, I'll say. It made it so much worse. Now it takes weeks and weeks to get a new driver on the road. It's um, tons of delays processing, getting road tests. Uh, you know, this really was upheaval for our industry and the MELT program. We we need some help from Alberta Transportation. They, they recognize what they did to Class 1, so they brought in a, a grant called Driving Back to Work Grant and, and really to supplement uh, people to go and, and take the course because it added so much time and cost to people to get the course. They didn't do it for Class 2. We've been asking Alberta Transportation. We've been asking the minister to look at Class 2. We're in the same boat as Class 1. We can't get people to take the courses. We can't get them to leave home for, you know, weeks and get child care and things for no money. And and we've get, it's fallen on deaf ears. Alberta Transportation has ignored us. And uh, so Melt has really been the the, uh, the nail in the coffin for us. It, it's, it's hurt us uh, substantially. Um, now, you had an opportunity to sort of work with a group that, you know, made a number of recommendations to the education minister a couple of years back on this to try and get a handle on the problem. Obviously, the MELT program is one of them. Are there other yeah. things that you think could be done that would maybe help you out of this situation? For sure. We looked at a bunch of things and we made recommendations. We asked about, uh, you know, how to... to boost driver pay to get get the pay up for drivers we've heard of areas in the province at 1650 an hour for a school bus driver a professional driver just not enough the average i'd say is not much more than 20 and uh, so we looked at things like that we looked at a province-wide benefit program for school bus drivers um, i know ontario brought in something called uh, drp driver retention program so the ontario government pays directly to school bus drivers that finish a semester a thousand dollars extra 
$1,000 if you finish the second semester. Things like that, we've we've asked for uh, different things. And, uh, of course, like anything, it all comes with a cost, so it's mm-hmm. moving slowly, <laughs> if at all. But uh, we did we did make quite a few recommendations to try to make it easier, but um, it's uh, it's not coming fast enough. Has anything happened? Has any? I mean, that was two years ago. Have any of those recommendations been implemented? Have you seen anything develop? Not a lot. Minor changes to the MELT program just to clean up some paperwork and and things like that. But there's been very few changes that have uh, impacted us in a positive way. Um, it's you know the money. I was taking a look at it. And I mean, the, the the province spends. I mean. $300 million a year on student transportation. They dropped another $9 million into the budget. I know lots of times yeah. with government, it's, yeah, we spend the money, but the question is, okay, but how and where do you, is there a, right. I mean, we're not, it can't be funding. They're spending the money, aren't they? Uh, the problem, and I give full credit to the current minister, the current government, uh, we did see increases um, two years in a row, which is unheard of in our industry. Uh, the problem was we were behind by decades. There were decades that went by where there was no funding, additional funding for school transportation. So as costs were going up and going up, there was just try your best to make it work. You know, you cut corners, you cut, you cut, and it falls on the back of drivers quite often. They're not getting pay increases. So what happened was we went decades without any increases, and then the current government minister said, okay, we need to do something. But the problem is you do a 5% increase and a 4.6% increase. That doesn't even cover inflation over the last couple of years. So it's great, and we appreciate it. But now what happened to the last 10 years where we had no increases? Yeah, so yeah. it's put a strain on the system, unfortunately, Shay. And, and that's that's where the issue came in. And, and again, give full credit to the current minister and brought the fuel funding subsidy back in because of the high fuel prices. Uh, we appreciate it. We really do. It's it's just, it was, um, it took so long to get there. Hey, I wanted to ask, okay, you said on average, let's call it 20 bucks an hour for a school bus driver. How many hours? I mean, they got the run in the morning and they got the run in the afternoon. Is that it? Or is it an eight hour day? I mean, if, you, if you're thinking maybe I want to be a school bus driver, what does that break down to? It, typically for four to five hours a day. So the run in the morning, the run in the afternoon. Sometimes the runs go over a little or they're doing extra work. And, and on occasion, there's some charter work to take a kid, you know, kids group to swimming or whatever that looks mm-hmm. like. And so it could be up to six hours even in, in some areas, but uh, that's typically it. Okay. Uh, question on the text line, and, I, and I'm just wondering, and I don't know if you have the answer off your top of your head, but some people saying, you know what, we've got, where I live, we've got three different school divisions. We've got French, we've got Catholic, we've got public, and they all run their own buses. Has there been, is that one of the things that you talk to the minister about, hey, let's try and, you know, where we can amalgamate these routes, and instead of having 10 kids on three buses, have 30 kids on one bus? Yes, for sure. That's something that our task force uh, looked at as well in depth, and uh the minister was asking for information on that uh, before the task force even got going. And, and, and a very good question, a good point. Uh, my answer is we interviewed every school district in the province, and 90-plus uh, percent of them already do that. They have okay. uh, co-op, cooperative busing of some sort. They work together. You know, uh, I have a location here in Fort McMurray. We've been doing that for years. We have three different school boards on the same buses. So, uh, so that is being done, and, and I'm glad you asked the question for our, you know, your listeners out there. It's, uh, it's important for them to understand that, uh, you know, whether it's Alberta education or the contractors, the school districts, they are looking at every efficiency possible. Mark, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for joining us today.
So yesterday at this time, we were talking about the U.S. building an airport in Australia capable of housing B-52 bombers, much to the chagrin of the Chinese government. Our guest at the time, John Gretzner, was saying, uh, he's with Canadian Global Affairs Institute, was saying, uh, you know, it's another example of countries being proactive and anticipating potential threats and, you know, getting in a position to respond before anything happens. Uh, he talked about how Canada never seems to do this, went through a long list of areas that we are neglecting, from defense spending to Arctic security. I mean, he, we've gone through them, right? Well, he's not alone in his assessment, not by any stretch. Our next guest has also seen some issues with Canada's defense. Matt Gurney is a columnist and co-founder of The Line and wrote a great piece on this, and he's joining us now. Matt, thanks for your time. I appreciate you being here. Oh, great to be here. Thanks for having me. It's really, you know, in, in your piece in the line, you, you talk about how Canada really likes to talk the talk on a bunch of this stuff, especially when we're on the world stage. You know, we, we talk a big game, but we don't even attempt to follow it up by walking the walk, do we? No. And, you know, I don't mean to make this partisan immediately because on defense, this is a longstanding problem. Yeah. Canada yeah. loves to talk about, you know, Vimy Ridge and Juno Beach and founding member of NATO and then our allies look at us, they're like, Great, can you chip in another battalion? And we go, No. <laughs> There's nothing new about this. And this is not a uh, uniquely liberal problem. That being said, we do have now a federal government that has been in power for seven years under Justin Trudeau. And without wanting to make this totally partisan, I think it's fair after someone's been in power for seven years to start asking what has happened during those seven years. And I think as well, it's important to look at what's happened specifically in the last eight or nine months, kind of in the immediate run up uh, to the invasion of Ukraine and obviously all the um, yeah. uh, political brinksmanship before it. And as I wrote in my column, there actually is some good news of a kind, but like the good news has a huge asterisk that needs to come alongside of it here. Since Russia invaded Ukraine, and since we heard all this really, really, really tough talk from the Liberals, Prime Minister uh, Christian Freeland, the Deputy Prime Minister, Anita Anand, the new National Defense Minister, they're all saying the right things. And then I was kind of like, okay, cool. Like, let's look at what they've actually done. Right. And there is the good news, and the good news is we have announced some major necessary initiatives. We have announced that we'll replace the uh, the elderly CF-18 jets, older than their pilots. Uh, they'll be replaced with F-35s. We've announced that with the Americans, we'll be modernizing NORAD's system of continental defenses. Finally, we agreed to buy the Army new pistols. They won't have to use their World War II-era pistols anymore. So this is all good, right? But sure. the problem is... As I said in the column, it's also just doing the absolute bare minimum. Like, all of these things should have been done 10 years ago. In some cases, they should have been done 20, maybe 30 years ago here. So I do give credit to the government for actually making some moves on these important public policy files. But they're 30 years behind, and they're only getting Canada caught up to where we should have been circa 2005, not where we're going to need to be in 2025, 35, and 45. That's the thing. We're not, I mean, we, we go on and we talk about some of the things that we need to do and some of the advances we need to make, and even just on spending. Um, but basically, we're just barely managing to maintain in some areas, we're not actually improving uh, our defensive capabilities. No, no. And I think if we're being honest here, and this is the problem, and this is, again, 
I'm dragging politics into the realm of defense, but unfortunately that you can't separate them here. This is a problem we have in this country, and we have it at the federal level, we have it at provincial levels. I don't know about your local municipal scene, but sure as hell we have it at the Toronto level as well. Politicians will show up, they'll make an announcement, and then they'll reap the benefits, right? Like, all of the benefits are in the saying and the announcing yes. rather than doing and the accomplishing. So what we have here is, again, the Liberals, I know what they're going to do. Like, I can tell you without even reading the press releases, they're going to talk up the pistols, they're going to talk up NORAD, they're going to talk up the F-35s. But there actually is a really basic test that we as Canadians need to start applying to our politicians. And again, this is at every level. Is the situation getting better? And it's a really simple, easy, easy test. So with the armed forces, we've had the government announce some major spending initiatives. Awesome. Is the military better off? No, it's not. And you know, this is the problem. And it, the politicians are going to stick the price tag for the F-35 purchase in the press releases. They're going to talk about our great relationship with the United States in the NORAD press releases. And they're not going to talk about the fact that our Canadian Armed Forces is in a state of crisis. And they're talking about that. The, 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 the forces themselves are saying, hey, we're overwhelmed here. If you know what to look for, because look, I mean... Interpreting how soldiers and sailors and air crew talk is sort of like how reporters have to get used to how cops talk. Like they kind of talk in their own little language, and you gotta you gotta speak cop or you gotta speak military. But the military has been warning us for years that it is in a state of crisis, that it does not have the ability to accomplish all of the missions that has been assigned to it. It does not have enough equipment. It does not have enough money, and critically, it doesn't have the people. And that's yeah. what we're dealing with here right now, the Canadian Armed Forces. The Armed Forces have a nominal authorized strength of about 100,000 people. That's a little bit over, just over 100,000. That probably is kind of small for a country our size and with our land mass and all of our different treaty obligations. But even if that was the right number, we don't have 100,000 people. We have budgetary room to have 100,000 people. But the latest report from the military, and this just came out a few weeks ago, is that the military is under strength by about 12,000 people. Hey, we can be optimists here and we can say, well, great, it has 88% of its authorized strength. No, 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 no. It doesn't work that way. As we're seeing in hospitals all across the country right now, what happens to a hospital when it has 88% of the necessary number of nurses? It fails. Our military is failing because we are not staffing it correctly. The, thing, the question I always ask when we talk, and I agree with everything that you're saying, Matt, I'm right there with you. The question I have, though, is I've covered elections in this country for longer than I like to remember, and defense rarely, if ever, becomes an issue among the electorate. We talk about health care. We talk about all kinds of other issues. We as Canadians don't seem to stand up and say to our governments, hey, what are you doing on defense? Are we giving them a pass or have government sold us that, that everything's okay? I mean, how do we get movement on this? Canadians don't care about defense no. in the same way that the rich kid you grew up with didn't care about balancing a checkbook. He never developed the skill set that he never had to. Right. 
Yep. And, you know, I was saying to a friend recently, you remember, this is, this is going back, blast from the past, but from, from one broadcaster and journalist to another, I bet you you're going to remember this. That American judge in the United States who let a guy off after he killed a family in an impaired driving uh, crash, and he let him off on grounds of affluenza. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and then he took off to Mexico, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. the kid that was so rich that he had no concept of reality, which was actually what the judge ruled. Canada, as a civilization, has a nasty case of affluenza. <laughs> we are rich, safe, comfortable, happy, and we really don't appreciate the fact that what we're living in here is a quirk of historical forces we did not create and cannot control, and also we won the geographic lottery. Exactly. And we posted I, I, on that. Yeah. And the problem is, as I always joke, you know, one of, my, one of my good friends out your way in Alberta, Jen Gerson, she said years ago, it only takes money about three or four generations to ruin a family. Because you've got the guy who made it, values it, knows how to use it, is well-adjusted, knows what the world is like. His kids, eh, yeah, they're a little bit spoiled, but they're still close enough to the old man that they know, hey, you know, he had to work really hard and they've absorbed those lessons. The grandkids are getting kind of flaky and the great grandkids are just write offs. They are so far removed from reality that they don't even know it exists. Yep. Canada right now is in its third or fourth generation of this post Second World War winning streak of peace and prosperity that we did not create and did not earn, but we benefited from it. And after almost 80 years, I mean, more than 80 years of post-Second World War, um, uh, peace, prosperity, plenty, safety, security, Canadians think this is just the way the world is. And hey, it has been for them. But we don't understand that we're living through this incredible blessing, this incredible fluke of history. And it's not guaranteed to last. Well, that's the thing, Matt. I mean, you, you don't have to look too hard to see the cracks in that peace and prosperity that we've enjoyed for so long. I mean, you can see what's happening. The United States has changed their stance on geopolitical things. China, you never know what's going on with them. They've started to talk more about security. You've got the situation in that part of the world. You've got the situation in Ukraine. That peace, that prosperity, that comfort we've enjoyed for so long, you can see it starting to fray. Yeah, and I know it's hard to convince Canadians that, like, the Russians are going to land troops in British Columbia. Yeah. They're having a hard time landing troops across the river in Ukraine right now, but... <laughs> I, you, I think what we've been seeing these last eight or nine months is how interconnected the world is. Canadians are going to have a really tough winter, and I don't think the public is clued into this yet. The cost of your energy, your home heating, your fuel, your food is going to be way up this year. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But a big one of those things is something that is happening halfway around the world in yeah. Central Europe. Yeah. Like, we don't have the luxury of considering ourselves here a complete island. You know, it would be great if this rich and bountiful land of ours was really self-sufficient in everything. Right now, we can't even get children's Tylenol stocked up in pharmacies here. We are dependent on global trade with a world that is becoming a nastier, more violent, less stable and angrier place. What are we doing about this thus far? Not literally nothing, but pretty close. Pretty to close. Yeah. Well, we, you know, like you talked about the neighborhood getting nastier. We've heard Canadian government officials say that and tell us that, hey, things are changing out there. We, okay, well, what are we going to do about it? And like you say, not a whole lot. That's the concern.
Yep, that's what keeps me up at night. Well, I mean, in fairness, there's a lot of things keeping me up at night. <laughs> that's one of them. Matt, fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.